guys are here tonight. You chose to um, take a time out of your week to come worship the Lord and to learn more about Him. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're in James chapter 4. That's where we've been for a while. We'll have verses on screen and things like that coming up. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot going on in our world, and uh, James uses a lot of strong language. We were just talking about this in some connect groups on Sunday night, but the idea of war. Obviously, if you have been paying attention, there's a lot going on in Europe right now between Russia and the Ukraine, and so you've got images of war that you can really um, kind of dial up pretty easily when you think about it. Um, this passage tonight, I, I titled this, this uh, sermon, Love and War, Love and War Going Together, and you're going to see why in a second. Um, I, I think that I, I actually had a different title in mind, and I thought I would totally hit half of the room, and the other half of the room I would not hit. The original thought was the greatest love story, and I thought about that, and the moment I thought about writing that, I thought about the dudes going, gag me, like I don't don't want to hear that. And then I thought about asking for audience participation and telling me like the greatest love story that you've ever heard of. And then I thought about all the different options that I could get. I could get some of you guys throwing out like rom-coms and all the great like, you know, science or not science, like not like the fiction movies. Or I could hear you guys going like super uh, historical, going like Antony and Cleopatra. But I didn't go that direction. Uh, we decided to go with love and war as the discussion for tonight. Um, as we get into this, I just want to let you know, as I was reading and studying this over the last uh, couple days, um, this is a really, it's a really straightforward passage. Um, that's not new if you've been with us studying the book of James, because James writes and speaks to his audience in a very straightforward manner. But um, this is probably one of the strongest calls for repentance that you will find in the New Testament. When I say that, I mean, if you take a look at the, the half of the Bible that talks about Jesus and his life and onward to the end, this is one passage that is very straightforward in a challenge and a call to everyone, not just people who are not church people. Like if you are sitting in here thinking, I'm not a church person, this is not just for you. This is for those who are church people, quote unquote, um, myself included, I, and I've been saying this all the time, this is not a you problem, this is not a me problem, this is a we problem, okay? And so when James talks about these things and how straightforward he is, I want you to start thinking about um, this in your life. And there's a couple things on my heart that um, we'll get into in a second, and I think, you know, it's, it's, I want you just to internalize these things, and maybe you're not falling in some of these areas, but I want you to think about how you need to protect yourself from falling into some of these areas, and you'll see what I mean when we get there in a second. Uh, we're going to read James chapter 4, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 4 through 6. It says this, you adulterous people, I told you he was not going to be holding back tonight. Um, this is a really strong word, and I don't know if that lands with you as it should, but he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You adulterous people. That's how he wants to start this address to the people he's writing to, that's how we read this. And if you read this as it is intended for you to be hearing this, that is a really strong thing to say to people. 
If you don't know what that means, let me just break it down for you. It means you are like somebody who is married to another person and you're constantly cheating on them. That's how he calls you. That's what he is addressing the people who are reading this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? This is such a a big passage for us to understand in today's world because right now where you are seated and in many other places that are going on right now there is a battle on for your mind and for your belief system to tell you that you can be just like everybody out there and you can still have God there's a belief system that is trying to train you to think that to follow Jesus doesn't mean that you need to separate yourself from the world that you can be just like everybody else. You can have all the nice, you can do all the nice things. You can do all the funny things and all the crazy things and the bad things because ultimately God is love. And that's the message that you're going to hear all the time. God is love, so therefore he wouldn't demand things of you to stop you from doing things that don't seem fun or that could be seen as hurtful towards other people's lifestyles or other things like that. See, the problem with this is that throughout the Bible, there is a constant theme that how God relates to his people, okay? And that theme is under attack constantly in our culture, but it's the theme of marriage. This may seem weird, and as a guy, it was really hard for me because you think of yourself as a dude, like especially in the way that we understand marriage is the man asked the girl to marry him, right? So there is this kind of leadership that comes with being a guy when it comes to marriage, right? But the idea that we, the church, are the bride and Christ is the groom is a little difficult sometimes for me to wrap my head around. But the more that you study scripture, they, it just continues to press this theme over and over. That God chose the people for himself and he loves them dearly and he has entered into a covenantal relationship with them. Meaning it's not like a contract that, you know, you hold up your side of the bargain and we hold up our side of the bargain. And then at the end of the time, God says, here's eternal life. That's not what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise that you will not break. No matter how the other person handles their end of the bargain. A contract means you hold up your end of the bargain. We have rules. If the rules are broken, contract is voided. Covenants don't get voided. And so the idea that marriage is how God pictures you and your relationship with him or his people with him is a very deep, serious picture. And that's why it's under attack all the time. That's why the enemy and in, in our culture, Satan is using all the things in our culture to attack it and tear it down. And that's why it's not a political issue. It is actually a spiritual issue when you start talking about things that involve marriage. When the Lord chose a people for himself, I, I love how somebody said this, he was like an enthusiastic young man pursuing and claiming his bride. It's the deepest love of God in action. I'm going to just take you to two passages. I, I quoted them or put them on the screen. You don't have to flip there. I'll flip there and read them for you really quickly. But Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8 says this, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He's talking to the Israelites, the Jewish people. Not because they were lovely or strong or great. Not, no, that's not why he chose them. But he chose them because he loved them and he kept the oath that he swore to their fathers. He brought them out with a strong hand and redeemed them from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh. Let me take you to another place, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. It says this, 
For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. See, this is why this passage starts off with the idea of love being central and core. That Jesus loves you dearly. He loves people, his people, the church, so dearly. He has a deep, passionate love for his people. And if you are one of his people, that includes you right now. Where you sit tonight, he has a deep, passionate love for you, a pursuing love, a love that chases you down, a love that wants you to know the best parts of your life that are going to only be found in a relationship with him, not with other things. Certainly not a relationship or a friendship with the world. And I think when we read this, we see, okay, well, hold on, let's go back to James 4. He says here, don't you know that friendship is hostility towards God? Friendship with the world, really? Like just being friends? Like that means I can't have any friends that are in the world? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you have to be some kind of like weird monk person that like builds walls and you never come out of like your safety Christian compound and you like, you know, have a moat around and you don't let people on the outside cross over. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is you and what you are willing to compromise and give yourself over to. See, the ancient view of friendship, I have this on the screen, but the ancient view of friendship sheds light on the seriousness that James is charging here, okay? He says here that, that friendship is not just to be casually like we call friends. Like, nowadays people have Facebook friends, Instagram friends. You have friends that you meet on weird, like, social media online gaming platforms that you've never actually met that person face-to-face, but yet you call them a friend. Like, you actually don't know. That could not be their name. They could be somebody fake. Who knows? But, but we call all kinds of people friends now. So the, the word friendship kind of gets lost on us. But, but here, it really means that you would share all things with the person who you call a friend. So what James is saying is, you think of the world, all the stuff that is separate from God, as things that you can share your life with and take from them as well. There's the deep relationship happening there. That's why he's drawing the picture of it sounds like adultery in a marriage. Because it sounds a lot like you're leaving the one whom you are supposed to be with, the one that you covenanted with, the one that you promised to stay with and the promise to love, and then you started to dabble in stuff over here. You know, the only way I can illustrate this is, you know, I'm married, so I can take this, I can use this analogy, right? So, so let's just imagine for a second that, you know, um, I, I didn't have, tons of girlfriends growing up. I was not like, you know, the guy who dated around because I just didn't have that type of game. Um, So I'm very blessed that I found somebody as beautiful as Morgan. But let's just say that I had dated a ton of people or I dated, well, I dated one person. So let's just say I dated one person because I did and I saved all these like trinkets and all these like memories from the relationship I had with that person. And I stored them in a box, okay? And I saved up all the like fun things that we did, the dates we went on, pictures, selfies, all that stuff. We didn't have selfies. We did the old school picture booths in the mall. So we had those things. So let's say I saved all those and I had them in a memory box. And then I meet Morgan and I forget about that girl. That memory box kind of gets slid into the attic. It collects dust and I don't think about that person anymore. And then I get married, commit myself to Morgan, and now we're, we're married. I covenanted with her. But then, you know, we get into an argument. And things just kind of go wrong, and I'm just like, ah, this, is, this thing is hard. Like, she gets on my nerves today. It's Monday, and she's getting on my nerves. You know what? I'm going to go up to the attic. 
Go to the attic, dust off the old box, pull that box of memories from past, and I come back downstairs, and I just open it up right in front of her and just start going through. Oh, man, did you see what we used to do? You see all these memories? Wow, that, that looked like a lot of fun that I used to have with that person. That's terrible. I'm getting some sideways eyes from some people. That sounds disgusting. You should not do that. Don't worry. I don't have one of those memory boxes. And if I did, I would not do that because that would be terrible. But the idea that James is trying to get at is when you want to go hang out in the world and do all the stuff that the world's doing and really dive into a friendship with them, commingle with them, that's kind of how we're treating our relationship with our true love of the Lord. And I know, like, it, the easy thing for me to do tonight would just to be to pick on, okay, like, there's a bunch of behavioral things that are going on, you know, so, like, um, you know, you, you drink or you vape or, um, you, you know, you're doing inappropriate things with your girlfriend or boyfriend or with the same sex, you know, we could talk about all those behavioral things. You have a bad, you have a bad mouth because you just talk like the rest of the world, um, you know, you, you, you steal, you've got a stealing problem, you have a lying issue. I mean, we could talk about all those things that, you know, those are things that would be symptoms of a heart issue and those things hear me are wrong and if you're enveloped in those i pray that you would seek help and you would say lord release me of those things help me have people in this church my friends my family and pastor kyle leaders here have somebody to help me get away from those sins in my life and that is truly what they are they are a trap that you need to get free of okay and i pray that for you if that's where you're at in some of those behaviors but I also think on a deeper level, there's a lot of other things where we are in danger of making friendships with the world and the way that we approach thinking about who God is and thinking about the way the world works right now. And, and I was reading through some really, some amazing books. I don't, I don't own all of them and I wish I did, um, but, but there's, there's just this sense that we think that we can jump in and be kind of worldly and still be Christians. And that, that, that's not true. It's not and I'll be honest with you, and I've said this, I said this to somebody earlier this week, and, it, and it's so true. I care about you guys too much to just kind of sugarcoat this and make it sound like being a Christian and being in the world can work. It can't. And I know I'm going to say some things that are going to be really difficult, and they may push some of you away and go, I don't want to choose that in your life. Because you know what you're doing? You're counting the cost of how much you'll have to give up to follow Jesus, and I actually want you to. I want you to consider how much you would have to change your life, get away from the world, and follow Jesus. I want you to think that way. Because I don't want you to think that you can just continue doing what you're doing and add Jesus in too. Because then you have been deceived to think that you actually are saved. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to be caught up in worldliness. Jerry Bridges, um, I think he has passed away. I can't remember. Um, there's so many people that I read, but... This is one of my favorite authors, and if he is passed away, then he's with the Lord, and like I always say, he can't mess up the rest of his life, so I can quote him, and I can really appreciate um, everything that he's said. But he has a twofold definition of worldliness. I have it on the screen because I love this. You can jot it down, take a picture of it, but this helps you. He says, first, worldliness is a preoccupation. You're caught up with the things of this temporary life. You're just caught up with the things that are temporary in the world around you. Second, Worldliness is accepting and going along with the values and practices of society without discerning if those things are biblical. And that's where I really want to attack in the time we have remaining tonight. There's a lot of new 
Christianity type beliefs. So you, you can't you can't repackage this thing. You you can't repackage the Bible. I mean, the Bible itself says that if anyone comes along and adds words to this, even a single iota, may they be cursed. So so this right here is closed. It is sealed. It is what it is. You can't change it. You can't improve upon it. You can't get like a beta. This isn't the beta version. And then there's like some better version coming later. You know, like there isn't like, you know, as we get iPhones every fall, there's not like a better version of Christianity or scripture coming later. It, It is what it is. And maybe that doesn't sit well with a lot of people right now, but that's a lot of the things that people are thinking. And, he, and here's some of the beliefs that I was studying and just thinking through how these new Christianity-type beliefs are coming out. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you this, that some of these things I've jotted down, this is not all of them. I just picked about five or six I think are really problematic right now for us. They all have a piece that sounds kind of right, which makes them really dangerous. So, which is why I'm saying you've got to be really careful being cuddling up to the world. Because if you're cuddling up to the world, then you're going to start thinking this way. And it's going to have an end result where you choose to live your life with some of those destructive choices that I mentioned earlier. Okay? Here's number one. The new Christianity belief would say this. Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. He's a great model. He's a great teacher. He's got some really nice stuff to say. He loved poor people. So people are about that part of Jesus. They love that idea. Um, he seemed like he was a pretty stand-up guy in, the most, in most parts. I mean, he really seemed to be very kind and caring. But the translation to that is that Jesus isn't divine. He's just a good moral teacher. That's a problem because the Bible and Jesus himself make it very clear that he was God in the flesh. So, so don't get sucked into that type of worldly thinking, that Jesus is just a model for how we should live our lives. Yes, he was perfect in every single way. And so, yeah, we should model that perfection. But, man, it doesn't stop there with him. He's God in the flesh, not just a good guy or a great teacher with nice things to say who you could line up next to Muhammad or Buddha or whoever else and say, yeah, they're all the same. No, no, he, he's God in the flesh with, yes, important things that were taught but he's much more than just a good moral teacher. The second one that I see often in our, in our world right now is affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Now you gotta, like, you gotta encourage people. You don't need to tell them about all the stuff that's broken in their lives. You, you just really gotta like, flesh out. Like, there's always some good in everyone, right? And we just gotta seize the potential, and everybody's created for great things. I mean, there's, pe- there's preachers out there every Sunday saying, you were designed and created for more. You just got to find that thing, and you just got to give yourself over to that. And that sounds really good. And, and by the way, you were created for great things. But those great things are for the glory of God. And you know what? You can do really small things that are boring and mundane for the glory of God. Like, you could be a janitor for the glory of God. But some preachers would tell you, He's not living up to his potential. He needs to go set the world on fire. He needs to go make money. He needs to go do this. He needs to go make a lot of things happen in the world. He needs to have social media followers going crazy. He needs to have all this because he's not living up to his God-given potential. I tell you what, yes, that person is if they are submitting themselves to God and living for the glory of God. That's the greater thing. But, but people want to affirm people's potential so much more than remind them that there are issues in their lives. And here's the translation to that. Sin is not a problem. People 
are pretty good. People are good. You know, like if you just let pe- people will work it out eventually. Like Russia, Ukraine. If we just get the right people in charge, everybody will calm down. We'll take away our, you know, nuclear crazy buttons and we will be cool. Like we'll be good. No, we won't. If you leave humans in charge, they mess it up every time. Because fundamentally at our core, we are not good. We are bent on selfishness. We are bent on sinfulness. We are sinful creatures from the moment that we enter this world. We have a nature that is sinful. It's not learned behavior. It's the old classic example. Do you got to teach a baby how to be bad? No, you don't. They figure it out real quick. Saw it with two twins when they were tiny, three months old. One's grabbing a passy from the other, stealing. Boom, sinful, three months old. Little sinful people. We all are. They're all laughing right now in the back because they're trying to figure out which one was that again? Who stole whose passy? Yeah. See, that, that is what is our problem. Number three, this is the one I, I, I think um, there's some of you guys who you're in church a lot. And so I'm not trying to direct this and make you feel guilty and, and get you to do more. But, but I think this is I'm just trying to train you on how you see what we do here at church, not just our ministry, but the church as a whole. Number three, institutions just abuse their power and cannot be trusted. Here's the translation to that, okay? And and people have been failed by governments and other institutions. And by the way, there have been churches that have messed up. And so I'm not saying that every church is perfect. There are churches out there that have done really bad things. They've stolen money from people. They've hurt people. They've done really bad stuff. But you can't just throw out the institution of the church because some people have messed it up. Here's the translation. Faith is just a personal matter. I don't need the church to be a Christian as long as I stay focused on God's mission. Man, COVID really made people think this way. I don't need to go to church. They'll live stream it, and I can watch it in my pajamas on a couch. Or, as some people in this room have done, in a hot tub. Not naming names. It's okay. It was during quarantine. It's not like they do that all the time. They're here most Sundays. I'm just kidding. They know who they are. This is the problem that most people have and how they view church right now. They think that church is just something that you can hop in and out of. It's not, it's not a big deal. You know, it, 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 it takes second place to other things, practice and academics and all these other things. Church always takes a back seat. And when the church doesn't meet our schedules, then we get upset because the church needs to bend to what we're doing instead of we need to bend to what the church is doing. And we get really upset because they make it difficult or something else is going on. I was reading this article, and the quote that I have on there is about people in Gen Z, or what they're actually trying to rephrase is uh, Gen I, like iPad or iPhone, because you guys are just always on devices, okay? And that's just what it is. I'm not just trying to make a statement. It's just what it is. But somebody made a really interesting point. Because of social media and because of these devices, you guys are growing up in a time where you don't have a structure, Like, you can enter social media like Twitter or Instagram or whatever other platforms are out there now and Snapchat, whatever, and you can essentially create whatever identity you want because there's no structure around it. You guys create the narrative. You guys make your own narrative. Now, that sounds really empowering, but what this person commented on is the biggest goal of Generation Z seems to be an expansion of options, right? Like, okay, so I can show these people what I look like here, but then I've got options over here that I can check this out. 
Or I can, I can use this one app over here and meet with these people, but then I have a whole other option over here, and I can use this. There's always options. And that sounds really empowering. That sounds really great. But this person said what they're trying to create is a life where they are never enslaved to anything. And there's always a way out. It's the same. It's with social media, it's easy. There's a way out, right? You just delete that, create a new account. Create a ghost account. Create a burner. Whatever you want to do. You just you delete that or hop onto the next app that you think is the next cool thing, right? But what I see is that this is filtering down into church mindset where we just kind of create this. I don't want to really commit to this because I need to have a back door and a way out. I need to have an exit strategy when I don't like what's happening here. That, that's the kind of mindset, and if you're not careful, that's a worldly mindset that will filter into the way that you act. I got to get out. I, instead of quoting all the time, I just, I just thought this, was, this book is called Beautiful Resistance. Uh, it's written by a pastor named John Tyson. And um, in it, he, he writes a lot of really great things about the church. And I, I just want to read this one thing just straight from it. It says this, the church exists as a counterformative community. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's saying the church goes against everything that's happening in the world. Okay? So we don't go to church for entertainment. No, what we're really working for in church is the transformation into the image of Jesus. So, so you don't come here, and I didn't do this, I kind of did this on purpose, I didn't really. Um, you know, every week we've had like snacks and stuff on Wednesday night. I decided I'm going to forgo that this week. I don't want to see if anybody complains. And if, if you are, if you were thinking about complaining, I'm not calling you out, I'm not trying to pre- preempt it. But I, I thought this really went well as an illustration for what he's saying here. Church is not entertainment, making just comfortable places for you to come and gather. He goes on, church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or to build up self-esteem or to facilitate friendships. Let me read that again. Church, what you're doing here, gathering here, does not exist primarily, it's not the primary goal of us gathering, is not to provide entertainment to make you feel really great about yourself and think that you're awesome or to facilitate friendships. Now, Can I build you up and encourage you? Yes, and I hope I do. Can you facilitate friendships with other believers in here? Absolutely, and I hope you do. Can you be entertained? Well, you know, I'm not that funny, and my stories are pretty lame, so probably not on that one. You may have to go somewhere else for that, but could you be entertained? Guys' night's pretty fun, so maybe there's that, okay? So you got some things. You got other entertainment options. But the primary reason the church exists is to worship God. That's it. I love, Brian does such a great job. When he leads us in worship, he tries to place God on the forefront of your minds. When you sing those songs, when you read those lyrics, when you hum, when you sway, when you try to harmonize, when you blurt out whatever noise comes out of your throat, when you sing, the purpose of it is to make more of God, to worship him. If the church fails at that, it fails. I have learned the ultimate goal of church is getting worshipers in touch with God. That is the biggest problem I see for not just your generation, but your parents, me, us, like people my age and older. Church is just entertainment, a place for my community. That's that's where the buck stops. And when those things are removed, then people stop coming to church. Again, those things are good parts of church. 
But the primary reason that you come here, the primary reason that we open the doors, the primary reason that I do anything that I do here is to provide you an opportunity to worship God, to come back to the one who loves you, to spend time with the one who loves you more than anybody else, to fall in love with your Savior more. That's why church exists. You cannot be a Christian and not be a member of a church. You can't. You can't do it. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, I just practice my faith quietly on my own. You need to be in church. Am I, am I saying that you can't be saved? No, you, know, you can be saved, but you're not going to grow in your relationship with Christ. And your faith is going to be so weak and fragile if you don't get into a community of believers centered around the preaching of his word. You're just not. You're not going to experience the given grace that God has given us. All right, I, I spent way too long on that pass. Sorry, that's a, that's a passion of mine. Okay, number four, gracious behavior. This is a worldly idea. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Here's the translation. Theology or your understanding of God doesn't matter. Just be a good person. That is so bogus. That is why I take such a long time to try and take apart things of theology, deeper things, that some people are like, why do you try and teach students that stuff? The reason is, is because if you don't have a correct view of God and you think it's just behavior, you are going to be so messed up because you will fall when people say things that is sounds really good, but it's really not true. You need to know what God says about himself and who God is. It has such an impact on your life. Number five, we should care more about love. Man, just love everybody and less about rules. This is one that, it, it, you know, it sounds like it's the crazies out there who are trying to redefine, like, you know, marriage, guy, girl, all that stuff. No, but, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's also, like, the, in the church, people are like, man, it's, you know, it's not all about rules. Jesus was about a relationship. Yes, relationships also have rules attached to them. My marriage, there are some rules in that. Again, I don't run away with other women because I'm in a relationship with Morgan. There's a rule there, pretty standard, I know, crazy, right? But that rule makes the relationship work. Relationships have rules in them. Your relationship with Jesus is going to have rules in it. There's going to be some things you're going to have to follow. There's going to be some things that you're going to have to do. Because the translation that you get from that is, God doesn't care what you do with your body, if your heart is in the right place, if you, if you just love that person, God doesn't really care. Love is love. No, God said that it matters what you do with your body because there are some things that are an abomination. There are some things that are just flat out unnatural. My kids are in the room, so I think you know what I'm getting at. I'm not trying to be too graphic here. because I have young ears in the room. But you get what I'm saying. There are some things in this world that are unnatural. Go read Romans 1. It's pretty straightforward. Does that mean that we don't love those people? Absolutely not. I love those types of people, and I want them to know Jesus, but I don't think that you can just do whatever you want with your body, and if your heart's in the right place, and you love that person, you care about that person so much that it's okay. No, it's not. It's sin. Straight up. And you guys are going to be sucked into thinking that that's, that's really harsh. That's hate speech. You're going to be sucked into the worldliness if you're close with the friendships of the world and you're getting in, in, into bed with the world. That's where it's going to take you. And you've got to be strong enough in your relationship with the Lord to be able to draw a hard line and say, no, I love that person too much to not tell them that what they're doing is wrong. So he, here's where we land, okay? And we're just and land the plane with this. Here's the simple truth to leave with tonight. 
Disordered loves lead to disordered lives. And the disordered love I'm talking about is, the, is idolatry. Worldliness is really just idolatry. When we choose friendship with the world, we give into idolatry in our lives. Look at 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. We have a problem where we take things that are good and we make them into idols. I'm going to quote this book again because I've just been chewing it up a little bit. But um, here's some things. Here's some tests. Ready? If you want to know if something's an idol in your life, here's some questions you can ask. How can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessings that I desire or am I worshiping God? Here's one way you can ask yourself if it's an idol in your life. If you're willing to have sin to obtain your goal, you've got a goal in mind, are you willing to sin to take a hold of that? Or if you sin, you disobey God when you don't get what you want. When your desire has taken God's place and you're functioning, then you are functioning as an idolater. So when you don't get what you want, do you just turn your back and go, I'm going to sin then because I didn't get what I wanted? Is there anything in your life you want badly enough that you're willing to violate scripture on your own conscience? Are you using sin to medicate the absence of something you truly want? These are some deep questions. But that, that helps us expose where idolatry may lie in our hearts because idolatry is a subtle one that can take good things, but we create them into God things. We take good things and we make them God. And that's dangerous. So here's the answer. Here's the war part where we have to fight back against this idolatry. There's two types of idolatry that I think we can kind of talk about in context of this passage and we'll be done. Number one is personal idols. We have to tear down personal idols in our hearts by giving our hearts to God. This is where we jump back into James. James 4, when he talks about this, he says, the spirit that he made to dwell in us, he envies or he is jealous. This is like the old David Crowder song that he, how he loves us, right? He is jealous for you. Now you say, well, oh, jealousy is a sin. Is that a problem? No, you know what? It's not a sin if he created you to be with him in a relationship with him. Like, am I jealous if some dude tries to holler at Morgan? No, she's my wife. She's committed to me. You can't holler at her. I, I have every right to be jealous and to go, yo, step, get out, move. Be, run along, young one. Run along, dude. Get out, of my, get out of here. You don't belong here. Because we're married. We are in covenant together. God has every right to be jealous for you. You know why he's jealous for you? Because he knows that nothing else in this world is going to satisfy you except for him. The most loving thing he can do for you is to pull you into him, not to expose you to other stuff that's not going to satisfy you. That's why he's jealous for you. Because he wants what's best for you. He wants your heart, and he knows he is the best thing. Now you sound, man, that sounds really arrogant. No, it's not arrogance if it's true. If it's absolutely true that God is the best thing for you, it's not arrogant. It's not proud. It's just the facts. And why nobody else can say that in this world is because every other person, you can't say to your future spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend even now, you can't tell them 100% true that you are the best thing for them. Because you know what? You're flawed. You've got problems. And they do too. So you can never say to your boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm the best thing for you. I got everything fixed. I got everything figured out for you. You know why? Because you're going to mess up and you will let that person down. But God will not. 
So therefore, he can be jealous for you because he created you. He put the spirit in you to dwell in you. And that's why he is so seriously passionate about you. He wants a relationship with you. And it says that he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So the way that we give our hearts to God is we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I want you. I don't want other things. I want to trust in you. I want to believe in you. I want to give myself over to you. I want to, I want to follow what you say to do, even when I think that it sounds kind of crazy or hard. I'm going to submit myself to you. I'm going to humble myself to what you say is true. So we tear down our, those idols in our hearts by giving our hearts to God. A couple other just quotes that these just really hit me hard. Um, actually, I'll, I'll save that for later. Okay. Um, number, number two, we resist the cultural idols. So, so you've got issues in your heart where you want stuff. Those are personal idols. Here's the second one. You've got cultural idols that we have, to, we have to resist. And here's how we tear those down and we resist those. Here's how we make war on those cultural idols through devotion and worship in the church. This is why it took so long on the point of why church is so important. Psalm 139, 23, 24, David writes this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. We, we, we will resist the way that the world thinks if we devote ourselves in worship and devotion to church. And here, here's the last part. I, I will read this quote because I just thought it was so good. The power of worship Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood in the face of Nazi oppression as a Christian and literally stared in the face of Hitler and all of them and said, I will not back down for the sake of the gospel, wrote a lot of things, but he said that we don't fight against things of this world. We fight against strongholds that we cannot see. Whenever the church gathers and offers its collective heart in worship, powerful things happen. The Father is seen for who he is, the soul is stirred, and Christ is seen, ascended in glory, and the heart rejoices. When you gather in Jesus' name, no matter how large or small your assembly, you are bearing witness before the powers that be that you cannot be bought. You will not give over to the things this world's trying to buy you with. Your heart will remain steadfast, your resistance will be potent, your vision will be glorious. Repentance and worship become your rhythm, and idols are replaced. Tiny outposts of worship can defy principalities, kingdoms. They can reconcile communities. They can transform history. God is at war for the love of your heart, so may your worship resist idolatry. God is at war for your heart. Resist the idolatry that you have of your personal idols. Resist the idolatry of all the stuff that's out there that tries to get you drawn in to thinking that it's better. And he says he gives grace to the humble. He wants you to experience the only type of grace and love that you will ever get that is endless from him. He wants that type of relationship with you. And so, so if, if you're in here tonight and you have that relationship with the Lord, but you've been kind of steering over and you've kind of been wandering over towards the things of this world, this is the time to kind of come back to your first love, get away from those things, distance yourself from that type of thinking or those actions. Come back to your first love. Fight against those because he is fighting so hard to keep your heart with him not with the things of this world, to resist that worldliness around us. 
Because if you decide to go the opposite direction and make your friendship, and again, friendship is not just, oh yeah, Facebook friends with the world. No, this is actually like a serious, you want to trade things, you want to invest your life and give and take with the world. What does it say here in James 4? You want to be a friend of the world? You'll become an enemy of God. Enemies of war, a war language, right? You've got enemies on different sides of the battlefield. So you get to choose. You, you, you want to cozy up with the world, you can draw that line and be an enemy with the Lord. And man, I, I could tell you that's a dangerous place and that's not a battle you're ever going to win. It's not an opponent that I want. I want to be on his side. And he invites you in to say, I'm chasing after you. I'm fighting for you to come to me. Don't go to that. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a heavy passage. And it has really challenged me in so many ways um, to think about how I see you and how I react to you and the idols in my own life. Um, It calls us out in a lot of ways. um, But you do so in love and you do so because you want better things for us than what we chase after. And we, we are prone to convince ourselves, God, that there are things in this world that are better than you or at least can satisfy something that you can't. Um, So God, forgive us when we are like that. Forgive me when I place other things above you or when I try to add things in addition to you, telling you you're not enough, that you and I, there just needs to be more. Just pray that we wouldn't fall victim to that type of thinking. We wouldn't fall victim to the type of thinking in the world right now that tells us we can join in with the things that they're doing and still maintain our relationship with the Lord. The reality is is that if we want to jump in to the things of this world, we will separate ourselves from you. And Lord, I, I just pray that nobody would make that choice. They would desire you and chase after you. They would pursue you. God, help us in- increase our love for you. The old hymn says, may, may all the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace.